Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. The condensed version of the Christian faith that's expressed in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. We've been studying about God. We've been studying about Jesus. And, and last week, the week before last, actually, uh, we came upon, once again, the person of the Holy Spirit. He's not an add-on to the Godhead. He's not Johnny-come-lately like, oh, God didn't know what to do after Jesus went back to heaven, so he invented some spirit to come and see us. No, we learned a couple of weeks ago that the Spirit of God has been eternally existent with the Father and with the Son, this holy trio that say they are one in a way that math doesn't quite explain, but the human heart can experience. I have one God who is a father to me and an older brother and a spirit that I can't quite hardly describe, but he comes close and loves me. And we learned about, about some things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives a couple of weeks ago. And today, we're going to take a look at what it means um, when, when Paul calls us in Galatians chapter 5, calls us to do life with the Holy Spirit. Not simply read the Bible, try to do what it says in there. Instead, Paul goes on at great length in this whole book, and, and especially in the fifth chapter, to say, um, it's not quite as much as you thought about doing what the Bible says. This life that God imagined for you is about you connecting with his Holy Spirit in such a deep, personal, and intimate way that your very heart and afterwards your actions become revolutionized, completely changed, transformed. If you look at chapter 5 and you were to read your way down through chapter 5 of Galatians, you would see that, and I think arrive at the quick conclusion, that what he's teaching about here is how to do life with the Holy Spirit. Because in verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. And in verse 18, he says, led by the Spirit. And in verse 25, he says, live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Apparently, this chapter's about life in connection with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if you read through that passage, you will see that there's an image that develops, some some imagery of deep connection and companionship with the Holy Spirit. And as, as Paul talks about that, he goes on to describe life according to two different orientations. He says, in this life, you will either be oriented toward your own flesh or you will be oriented toward the Spirit of God living within you. Let me, let me explain. Human beings are complex critters, you've noticed, right? And you, got, you have a romantic relationship. If you've ever had a romantic relationship, you have come to realize what a complex critter a human being is. It's about the time you think you've got him or her figured out. They leave your head spinning. Boy, I didn't see that coming. Hmm, never knew that. That surprised me. If you've ever, oh, I don't know, parented then you understand that human beings are complex from the time they're little bitty. There is more going on behind the eyes than you can see on their faces. And the face doesn't always give it away, does it? No. If you are young and have to deal with parents and grandparents, God help you. Because we are complex beings. And you look at us and you think, same old things. Mom and dad do the same old things in the same old order. All of it, it's just same old, same old. And then out of the blue, they speak something into your life that you never imagined. They make crazy decisions like quitting jobs, moving, and doing those things. And 
And you as kids have to, have to shift and adjust, and you realize human beings are complex critters. Yeah, God made us that way. He made us of, of, of several components. I would say, say three basic components or divisions to a human being. There's, there's the soul and the spirit and the flesh. Let me just kind of break those down for you, okay? Let's, uh, let's look at the flesh first, because it's kind of this. I mean, everybody has some. If you're still alive, you're dragging what will one day be a corpse around with you, okay? And it's in various stages of health or decay, can I get a witness, okay? Yeah, it's in various stages of, uh, of health or decay. And this, this flesh that is literally the, like the skin on the, on the muscles and the muscles on the, on the bone, all of that put together. I mean, there's, there's the biological flesh, but strangely enough, it seems that there is some sort of, I don't know, spiritual reality to this flesh and its fallen, dying nature, that alongside the biological processes of, of, that, that keep you breathing and your heart pumping and, and electrochemical signal going between the, the organ of your brain and the, and the muscles and the organs in your body, that alongside all of that physicality, there is also some sort of spiritual reality that shares not only in the living, but seems to have a disproportionate share in the dying. There is some part, some component part of humanity that the writers of scripture call flesh because it seems to want the fleshly things to be elevated up the chain of importance to where they get all the priority in your valuing, decision-making, and expending of resources. Meaning this, I want food. I want as much food as I want. I want I want all the kinds of food that I desire and none of the kinds of food that would make me healthy and taste good. Nobody woke up in the morning and said, oh man, I hope there's kale. Nobody, nobody ever, nobody ever said kale Sunday. If I could just have a kale Sunday, then, you know, my life would be good. There, there's something, I mean, you can make yourself eat kale. You can brag to your friends on Facebook about kale, but there's nothing in you that just says, oh, oh. Give me that, right? And there's all kinds of things that are good for our flesh that our flesh doesn't desire, right? That you have to, I mean, somebody once said, okay, I'm going to tell a gross joke. You ready for a gross joke? Just forgive me in advance. You ready for a gross joke? You know the difference between broccoli and boogers? You can't make a five-year-old eat broccoli. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. This flesh of ours is twisted. <laughs> twisted. And there's some, there's some, there really is some kind of spiritual reality that goes along with the misappropriation of physical desires that also then wants to take those things and, and elevate them up the chain so that the, so that the fleshly becomes more important to us than the spiritual. We might actually even just forget all about the spiritual and just follow the flesh. If the flesh wants food, we chase food. If the flesh wants sleep, we chase sleep. If the flesh wants sex, we chase sex. And And some people literally live their entire lives like that, right? But all of us live with a struggle where the flesh from time to time says, I want something that you and I know flat out is either evil or out of proportion in our lives, elevated too far up the priority chain, flesh. Humans uh, definitely have a flesh component. Uh, humans also have a soul, and a soul is made up of, of three different things. It's, it's your thinker, your feeler, and your decider, okay? Your, your mind, your emotions, and your will. The soulish part of a human is the mind, what you think, emotions, what you feel, and that will, that thing in you that can say, yeah, but I, I know what I thought, and I know what she thought, and I know what I felt, but I decide this. Thinker, 
feeler, decider. That's, that's your soul. So human beings, we've got flesh, we've got soul, and then we have spirit. And spirit's, I think, the hardest part of humanity to define. It is that thing inside you that is really you. It's that thing inside you that is completely alive. It's, uh, it's not your personality necessarily. It's not that you like, you know, uh, cinnamon more than, more than chocolate. It's, 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 it's not as, as um, how unimportant is that? It's that thing inside you that is the you that is affected by the flesh, that can observe, why am, why am I wanting that? That part of you that's asking the question, why did I want that? Why did I say that? That is your spirit. The thing that receives input from the, the world around you is the flesh, right? We've got this sinful, broken world around us that is all the time tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, look at that. Hey, listen to that. Hey, taste that. That's, that's the world influencing our, our flesh. But on the other end of the human, of the human being it is, this, is this spirit. And you know what it is that can influence a human spirit? The spirit of God. The Holy Spirit that we've been talking about, that we learned about all last fall, that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, the thing that can, that can kind of influence and give input into your spirit is the spirit of God himself. So here's the human being. We've got, a, we've got a spirit over here, can hear from God. We've got the flesh over here that is surrounded by this fallen world and influenced by it all the time. And they are giving input into the middle, into the soulish part of a human being where, we, where our mind and our will and our emotions all engage and mesh and begin to make the decisions that become human life. Tracking with me? Human beings, mind, will, and emotions make up soul. Flesh, this plus its desires that are kind of healing over, and sometimes out of control, in this spirit that in a lot of human beings is completely neglected and left dead. And whenever we connect with Christ, this spirit part of us comes alive, and his spirit begins to interact with our spirit, okay? In this passage that we've been reading, uh, Paul, Paul paints the picture that this, there can be this deep, intimate connection between the spirit of God and your spirit, so much so that those two kind of get married up inside of you to where you can no longer tell the difference sometimes, where you end and where God begins. And doesn't that sound good? Instead of God as this exterior entity judging me and, and telling me, you ought to get it right, I told you what to do, there's another commandment. But the idea of a God who comes and lives inside of me. So much so that he marries up with my spirit where at times I can't tell where he ends, where I end and where he begins anymore. That's what Paul's talking about in all of Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read a little bit in a second. But he describes life according then to two orientations. This, this, this core of you, the, the soulish part, mind, will, and emotions, he says it's either going to live oriented toward flesh or it's going to be oriented toward spirit. And here he kind of uses a capital S like the Holy Spirit in you going to be oriented in one of those two ways, all right? And I want to read to you today from Galatians chapter 5. We read verses 16 and 17. I want you to to look at at 18. And to give you a little break, I want you to stand up for just a moment. Verse 18, Lord, we're going to ask you to turn on the lights for us here as we read. We, We are in the heart of truth right here. Just help us to get it, we pray. 
He writes, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Take a breath, Paul. <sighs> Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, and things like these. I warn you, he writes, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, remember this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Right? He started out by saying, you're not under law, under grace. Just don't even worry about the law because nobody makes laws against loving and, and working peace in this world. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right, so Paul says we've got, we've got life, and it's, it's oriented toward either spirit or flesh. And then he gives us this long list of things that are kind of what the life will look like, what your life will look like, if you constantly listen to the flesh, point your, the direction of your heart and your mind toward it all of the time, and indulge it, your life will come to be characterized by those desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh will become works of the flesh. And then he makes this whole long, nasty catalog that a bunch of people are saying, I hope he doesn't describe. Too bad. Okay? Because the first three are kind of impolite to talk about, mixed company and with children around, but um, no, your television doesn't ever seem to quit talking about those things when in mixed company and the children are around. So how about we do it in holy fashion here? Nod your heads like this, because we're going to. All right. First one on the list, he said, is sexual immorality. It's very important that we understand that the scriptures teach that when it comes to sexual behavior, there is a different, there is a right and there is a wrong, and it is prescribed by the scriptures, uh, revealed by the holy God of heaven and earth who created human beings and determined how they were able to function and how they ought to function. And the Bible, without batting an eye in both Old and New Testaments, says there is a right and there is a wrong when it comes to sexual expression of human beings. It's not wrong to be sexual, but you are to express your sexuality in a way that is in, in, um, uh, in obedience to what the Scriptures teach. And I'll just, I'll just cut to the chase and narrow it down for you. Real simple, the Bible teaches that Sexual expressions for human beings are to take place within the bounds of holy matrimony between one husband and one wife. If you start to argue, ah, in the Old Testament, they had a bunch of wives. Yep, and we learned that was wrong. Just read all the stories about the people who had all the extra wives and see how well it went for them. Every one of them is a story of how not to do life and marriage, okay? We've learned. So by the time we get to the end of Scripture, it's, it's making it very plain, as, as Paul and the other New Testament uh, authors are saying, hey, make sure that the leaders in the church are people of one husband and one wife because this is to become a model to everybody else in the church. And anything outside of sexual expression between husband and wife, the Bible calls sin. Whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, heterosexual sex or homosexual sex, it is sin because it is outside the bonds of matrimony as described by God between one man and one woman. Okay? Paul lists it here. The next one on the list he calls impurity, and impurity, uh, sexual, um, sexual immorality is the stuff that happens out here with our body parts. Impurity is the stuff that's already happening in our minds and our thoughts and in our speech. 
And he says, if all these exterior things that we described as sexual sin are wrong, so is giving them a place to lodge in your heart and mind. As soon as you recognize those things happening in your heart, your mind, in your speech, it's time to correct and push them away. Paul says they don't have a place among us. Third one gets translated in different translations of the Bible different ways. And uh, I'm, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning, and they use the term sensuality, and it just, quite frankly, isn't strong enough. Because sensuality seems kind of like, oh, and nothing worse than that, right? But, but this word really means a, a complete lack of self-constraint so that we then indulge into things that go beyond even socially acceptable standards. And it almost always, sensuality, that word almost always relates toward sexual kinds of practices. In other words, sexuality that goes so far that even the ungodly go, ooh, too far, ooh, ah, avert your eyes, that's gross. Paul was writing to church people when he said, knock it off. We know there are things that are so completely beyond the pale that they just don't belong. Okay, first three, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. He then goes on to talk about idolatry, and that is both the worship of other gods and the uh, in, and being involved in the making of the statues that tend to represent them. There were a lot of folks who had been idol worshipers, worshipers of other gods, and craftsmen who made idols in these early churches that Paul was writing to. He said, um, don't have anything to do with it. Not only do you have a new god, you're, you're going to have to get a new job. You're just going to have to get a new job because you can't, you can't go uh, investing your life and its energies into something that helps advance the kingdoms of other gods. Now, I don't think we have a lot of idol makers here among us today, so we're probably good on that one. Um, I hope that if you're among us this morning and you are involved with other spiritual beings besides God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you'll give this God that we worship here um, a real chance to contend with your God for the, the place of supremacy in your heart. And I think you'll find, I think, I think if, you, if you're worshiping another God today besides ours, I think your God doesn't have room for our God. And so don't be shocked when our God doesn't have room for yours, okay? But allow this God to contend with yours for a place in your life, and I think you'll soon see there's room for one God in your life. The next term, um, in your, whatever translation you're reading from, may say witchcraft in mine is said sorcery. And here, and for the next few, I'm going to do something that I just don't typically do, and I'm not going to apologize for it today because it is in God's written word, and I'm held accountable by this, and I will be held accountable for it. So here we go. This word that is rendered sorcery or witchcraft in most, um, in most translations whew, is a lot bigger than that. Here's the word. The Greek word is pharmakeia. Pharmakeia. You already know this word, don't you? Pharmacy. Hmm. And it refers... It, it, very, very specifically to the use of drugs and potions in uh, being involved in the worship of other gods and, and the working of magic spells that most Americans just kind of dismiss. But get this, it goes deeper than that. The Apostle Paul in the very first century to the very first Christians was saying, not only don't have anything to do with other gods, but then this whole business of of involvement with the occult that many times involves the use of mind-altering drugs don't have anything to do with it. And then one level deeper, in, in particular, that use pharmakeia 
in, in response to the use of drugs in the worship of other gods, dealt very specifically with one particular drug that was used for the purpose of causing abortions. In the first century, the first Christian teachers said to the first Christians, the first followers of Jesus, life is precious, created by God. It must be given every chance to live and grow and and find connection in relationship with the God who created him. I'm just going to say it. The church of Jesus Christ is pro-life. You sit, now, listen, before you get all political, because I'm going political here in a minute, just understand, I understand there are political implications and discussions to be had, okay? But the church of Jesus Christ is for life. It is. Sorcery. Whew, a, lot of word, a, lot of, a lot of meaning packed into that word. He then uses the word enmity and... Um, and it's not just, oh, I know who's my friends and who are my enemies, because you guys know I'm a Chiefs fan, and Ken and I love each other, but he's a Raiders fan. It, there's no enmity here, is there? I mean, uh, look, if, uh, if it came down to, to picking the Chiefs or Ken, I'd take Ken, right? Um, it's, we're not talking about this, this little uh, opposition kind of thing. Enmity actually means looking upon other people with contempt, like like, they're beneath me. Like, like they're less than. And, and I have to address this this morning because as I looked at sorcery and I saw that it had a political implication in our culture, so does enmity. Because whether you are a Republican, a Democrat, a constitutionalist, an independent, a communist, or whatever, the call of God, as we read in the scriptures here, is that these kinds of things, enmity has no place among the people of God, and if you do it, you don't get into the kingdom. He said, Paul, who, whoever does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Christians, quit looking down on people of other political persuasions. There's a, there's a good chance that you are not one million percent right. I mean, that I'm not a million percent right, right? And if it's true of me, it's true of you. We have got to return to the place where we respect one another enough that we can disagree even on important matters and treat one another with respect that comes from a heart that already believes that that person is worthy of respect. Listen, let's shut down Facebook. Here's how we'll do it. Quit engaging in political conversations because you can say, play nice and your friends won't. And you'll be the one who stirred it up. It is time for us to stop all of the political eh, eh, eh with all of the people that we disagree with because it is enmity as described by scriptures and doesn't have a place among the people of God. Next word, strife. Here's the literal definition. I'm just going to read you the definition. Failure of civil discourse in deeply divided community. Politics. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm saying uh, don't engage in discourse that's breaking down and crumbling and turning into name-calling and stupid president whoever and stupid former president whoever and all of you idiots who voted for No place among the people of God for that kind of strife that, that turns into deeply divided community. I have, 
I have had conversations with more than one Christian in the Northwest in the last month who said to me, civil war's coming and I know what side I'm on. I tell you, Paul said, you participate in these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Strife. Jealousy. Listen to this one. It's, it's not just, oh, I, I like her shirt. I wish I had it. Jealousy means an unhealthy zeal to protect and promote one's position in a dispute. It's politics. Fits of anger. Here's the literal translation. Violent movement of air. Don't you wish all the violent movement of air in D.C. would just stop? Oh, and on Facebook, for those of us who support all the people in Washington. Yeah. Rivalries. This one has a political definition too. Listen to it. This is what the the word that that showed up in the Bible literally means. Self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Cheating on elections. Hiding money for campaigns. It's sin and wrong. And it has to stop. And we can't participate in it and we can't excuse it just because our candidate got elected. He goes on to mention dissensions and divisions, things that threaten communities and pull them apart. He talks about envy and that is wanting other people's things and and you'd be good with having their things even if it meant they were deprived of them and drunkenness and orgies and things like these. Paul just says, if you're you're constantly pointing your your thinker and your feeler and your decider in the direction of your flesh, the the desires of the flesh will become the works of the flesh and these things will, will begin to surface in your life. But he also held out another option, and it was that our lives could be pointed in a different direction. We could be oriented toward our spirit that has been married up with the spirit of God to such an extent that sometimes I can't tell where I end and where he begins because we have been made one. Just like Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer right before he was arrested, Father, make them one to the same extent that you and I are one. I in me and you in them, one, okay? He's saying you can live a life oriented toward the Spirit of God, pointing your your thinker, your feeler, your decider toward the Spirit and what the Spirit in you is saying. And over time, that will bear certain fruit in your life. Just like... Just like giving, uh, thinking about the desires of the flesh will turn into the works of the flesh. So also, if you point yourself, your person, your mind, will, and emotions toward the spirit of God in due time, that will bear fruit in your life. And he said, here's what it will look like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The way that this has traditionally been taught, uh, as I have, have grown up in the church and studied in the church and served in the church, is here's the two lists. Pick which one you think is better. And everybody, it's kind of, you know, an obvious answer. Pick, pick the fruit of the Spirit. And then usually it's taught, why don't you take a look and see which one of these fruit is most conspicuously missing from your life. And then you and the Holy Spirit start working really hard to build that thing up in your life. So if you're a, a, a husband, let's say, or a father who isn't very gentle, then you and the Holy Spirit better start getting gentle. 
that's not working. But that's how you've heard it taught, right? Look at the list. These things are missing. Start working on them. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength and insight. Warn you before the the temptation, uh, while it's still on the horizon, before it comes and surprises you and overtakes you, right? And I think that completely, completely misses the, the, the meaning of this chapter. I do not believe that Paul is giving us these two lists so that you pick one list and you then work hard to make it a reality in your life and ask God for a little boost when you can't get there. Instead, what he is teaching is what will begin to surface in your life if you try really hard to connect with the Spirit. You see, the effort isn't in making all these things show up in my life. He's saying, put all of the effort that you would have wasted, because it wouldn't work anyway, to try to become loving and try to become patient and try to become kind and try to become good and try to become gentle. He says, take all the energy that would be striving in vain and instead invest all of that energy by pointing your your, your soul, your, your mind, your will, your emotions, your thinker, your feeler, your desire. Point those toward God at some point in each day and put all of your effort toward relationship with the Spirit of God. And then you will begin to see some things bubbling to the surface where you're not as angry as you used to be. And the fuse gets longer. And the people that you just couldn't stand before, you feel some compassion toward Things that, you know, habits that used to own you, and suddenly they don't anymore. You find yourself facing the temptation and saying no and to, to the temptation, yes to God. Not because you white-knuckled it and beat it, but because you're so connected with the Spirit of God, day in, day out, again and again, that the temptation lost its grip in your life. See, the secret of a fruitful life, the secret to having love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life isn't trying harder to get these things in your life. The secret is having a relationship with the Spirit of God. A bunch of my life, for much of my life, I talked to the Heavenly Father. I talked to Jesus. And I would tell them, send your Holy Spirit to help me with blah, blah, blah. But I didn't work on relationship with the Holy Spirit for the longest time. And surprisingly, many of the fruits of the Spirit were missing from my life. Ask the authorities on the subject, the Purcell children and my wife. Bunch of things missing. Trying really hard. I'd promise I'd be a better dad. I'd promise I'd be more patient. I'd promise I'd be more sensitive and caring and kind. And then I'd just get beat at it. I just wasn't getting it done. So I'd I'd pray about it, and I'd, I'd promise and ask for God's help again as I am going to do this. I commit myself to a God. But somehow, over the last year or two, something like that, I've got a new relationship with God's Holy Spirit. And, and I've prioritized time in my day where the Spirit of God gets to hear my voice. He gets to see my face and have my undistracted, mostly undistracted attention. And the result is not I am changing, but I am being changed. See the difference? You see, these things are not goals in your life. These things 
are results. The goal is connected with the Spirit. The goal is connect with the Spirit. I want to talk to you in the couple of minutes I have left today about how to do that, okay? Um, Christians in our, uh, let's say, arm of the church have long talked about this thing like devotional life or devotional practices where we tell people, read the Bible and pray some. And uh, some people have really structured and disciplined uh, and developed devotional life, and other people go, I never have got that far. I try, and two days later, I forget that I'm even supposed to do it. Or I read, and it's just like chewing sawdust. It's really boring. doesn't seem to make any difference. God doesn't seem to show up for the appointments that I make. And and so this thing... becomes another work that we do that is lifeless. I understand. I've str- I struggled with that for a lot of years. If you've, how, just see, would you get honest and see through? If you have struggled with devotional life to the plate, yeah, boy, I have. Yeah. I want to tell you how this works in my life and, and, and how a number of people that I have read um, have come to the place that it was transformed from, from a life task to something that is life. Here's how this deal goes for me. At some point, for me, it has to happen in the morning. For you, it may have to happen in the evening. I won't, I won't square off with you about that. But at some point in the day before anybody else gets a chance to speak to me or I get a chance to speak to anybody else, there has to be a time for me and the Spirit of God to connect. And I do that by making one cup of coffee and pulling out the scriptures, and I sit down. But I promise the Lord, you may remember uh, my New Year's resolution this year, Pray first, read second. Because I was reading the Bible like crazy last year and it was crowding out prayer time. So I pray first and if I get around to reading the Bible, okay. The Lord and I are going to talk. And this begins by me just kind of centering myself before him, taking a deep breath and, and, and inviting the Spirit of God to come and sit with me. Instead of taking for granted that he'll show up or he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's a person. And so I invite him, would you please come and sit with me this morning? And then I take just a few moments to, to become aware of his presence. He never turns me down. So invite him and take a few moments to become aware of his presence. Second, you will have things that are pressing on you that you want to talk to God about. And so rather than being distracted all the rest of this time that you're connecting with the Spirit, why don't you just write straight up front, tell him, I have some things that are pressing on me that I would like to talk to you about. And you take however long it takes to tell him about all the concerns in your life and ask him to please listen, and he will. He won't interrupt. He doesn't talk over you. But this is a relationship, right? So it's supposed to go both ways. And so after you have had some time to to express your concerns to God, think about this. What if you were to ask God, do you have any concerns that you'd like to speak to me about? See, because he may be concerned about some sin and a blind spot in your life. He may be concerned about a, a, a friend or coworker or loved one in your life who has a great need that you've been oblivious to. He may have a concern about a broken or strained relationship that he wants you to now go and fix. Or he may just want to tell you how much he loves and approves of you. He may have a well-done, good, and faithful servant that he wants to whisper in your ear before you die. But if you're going to, if you're going to, Ask him to listen to your concerns. Why don't you ask him if he has any concerns that he'd like you to listen to? Just take a few moments to listen for his voice. I usually then conclude my time with him 
by just owning up. I own up to the fact that I don't listen that well. I own up to the fact that I will probably lose track of him at some point or several in the day. And I own up to the fact that I'm completely dependent upon him for life and for anything good. If any of those things on that side of the, of the list, that list on that side of the page, are ever going to take place in my life, it won't be because of Cliff Purcell. It'll be because of the Spirit of God who has married himself up with the Spirit of Cliff Purcell to such an extent that sometimes I can't tell where I end and where he begins. That's the source of goodness, the only source of goodness in my life. So friends, I just want to encourage you today. Three things. Number one, Take to heart the works of the flesh. It's time for the people of God to be done with them. Like, not try to quit. Not promise that your New Year's resolution after the next general election will be, but like today, when we leave here, we're done with the works of the flesh. Take a, take a quick look at the fruit of the Spirit, but don't obsess on it because you'll start trying to do them. Instead, since you already said this day belongs to the Lord, why don't you take some time between now and day's end, get by yourself just for a few minutes. Parents, you can work out who's on kid duty for a little bit. And just invite the Spirit to come. Take a few moments to, to become aware of his presence. For some of us, singing probably helps do that. Others, reading scripture does that. Pour out your concerns to him. Ask him to listen. Then ask him if he has any concerns that he'd like to share with you and confess your reliance upon him. And I'm telling you that over time, this will bear fruit in your life. You don't have to strive to become Christ-like. Strive for a relationship and it will produce it in your life. Stand with me, please. Gracious God, as we bow our heads this morning, I suppose we could, we could pray prayers of repentance for all the works of the flesh that we've done. I suppose we could pray prayers of, of repentance and forgiveness for all the fruit of the Spirit that are missing in our lives. But I'm not gonna. Instead, I would just ask, would you please be present with us right now? Would you, would you somehow pull in close enough that every person here can sense your presence? We listen for your voice. There are some things pressing on us that we would like for you to hear. Oh, Lord, hear our prayers. We'd be willing to listen. If you had anything, any concern you wanted to speak to us, Lord, we listen for your voice. We need you. We need you to keep showing up. We need you to keep listening. We need you to keep talking. And we need you to somehow walk step in step with us so we can walk in step with you. Help us somehow to tune out the voices of the flesh in the world and habitually to tune our thinkers, feelers, and deciders to the frequency of your voice, Spirit of God, that we might become like you in this life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, my friends, may you know the presence of the Spirit of God, and may he make you like him. Go in peace.